Hello and welcome to A Future Made. I'm Anna Pajajski, a material scientist and writer. And I'm Robbie Armstrong, a reporter and journalist. Together, we are bringing you A Future Made, a podcast by Heriot Watt University. In this series, we find out how pioneering research at Heriot Watt University in the fields of science, business, psychology, technology, design, sport, and engineering is helping to change the future, solve the problems of today, and make an impact on the global stage. Today, we're exploring sport and human performance and how it can shed light on health for all of us. We're going to meet academics in the university's School of Sport and Exercise at Scotland's National Sports Performance Centre, Orium. There's, for example, no difference in world record performances between males and females in shooting. Actually, could you have an open category there? Exposure to cold water, even three minutes, can reduce the potential for anxiety, depression and other mental health effects. I went to Orium to speak to Fergus Guppy, Jennifer Meggs, Billy Lowe and Mark Ross. We're also going to be hearing from a Harriet Watt alumnus, ex-professional rugby player Lee Jones. First up, Dr. Fergus Guppy is an associate professor in sports and exercise physiology. His work concerns inclusion and integrity in elite sport as well as anti-doping, and he's part of a team doing research into the inclusion of trans athletes in elite sports too. There's a final strand to his work which is looking at better data monitoring in real time to understand what's happening in athletes' performance and health. So let's get straight into it. Here's how Fergus's anti-doping research works. So what we're doing at the moment, we've got a sort of cross-sectional study looking at self-confessed testosterone users. So guys who are taking testosterone to improve muscle performance. And we're looking at genetic markers of anti-doping to see if they change as a response to those individuals who are taking steroids. So they're self-confessed testosterone users. Uh, the next sort of stage in that plan is to try and do a testosterone administration study where we take a group of people, give them some testosterone for a period of time, and then take muscle biopsies to look at what's happening in the muscle. And there's a theory that the amount of nuclei in the muscle goes up in response to testosterone and the nuclei is what drives the laying down of new muscle so effectively you put that scaffolding in place and those stay even after you stop taking testosterone so how long they stay for might mean that even if you don't take testosterone now having taken it in the past it might mean you've got a better ability to lay down more muscle in the future there's an urgent need for scientific research, I think. And this is where Fergus's, the two strands of Fergus's research come together because there's testosterone research looking at anti-doping and then there's also, you know, research which is related looking at trans inclusion in sport and, you know, the impact that hormones and testosterone have on sporting performance. The way that I've heard testosterone brought into the debate is quite often in a kind of unqualified way. Um, people kind of, point towards it as maybe a measure of who should be in which category. And I've always been convinced that that is a very unhelpful way to measure it. Yeah, and, and it's not always as clear cut or as simple as you might expect, depending on the context and the sport, which we'll, we'll hear about in a moment. Mm. So the, the research they're doing into trans inclusion, they're, they're really hoping that this might shed some light 
on a controversial topic using, you know, scientific data points and research, but it's early days yet. So we're looking at taking a group of individuals who have not yet undergone gender affirmation therapy and then following them for a period after they've undergone that therapy to see what happens to their physiology and their sporting performance to see whether there is uh, a performance enhancement and at what point, if at all, it disappears to try and add a bit more evidence to the debate around trans inclusion. Obviously, it's quite um, polarising um, and, and there's concerns on both sides around how we go about tackling what's obviously a really big challenge. So yeah, that's what we're doing at the moment. That's in partnership with a, a gender clinic in London called the Tavistock Clinic. We're taking those who are competing in sport and trying to understand that a little bit better. We're a long way from being able to make any sort of policy decisions or policy information really. But we're, yes, it's, it's quite an exciting project to be involved with. It must come with a great deal of excitement on a scientific level, but obviously a huge amount of responsibility there as well mm. to know that you are researching something that is so politically debated and controversial and in some ways has become an intractable issue. Mm. You know, could science potentially unlock some of that and, and help to find answers and solutions through pure evidence rather than conjecture and, and you know, emotion? Definitely. I think what is clear, hopefully to all sides, is that the categories of sport that we've got at the moment don't suit everybody. And so at the moment, it feels like, as you say, the debate is at a bit of an impasse. Nobody is happy with kind of any one solution that we've come up with so far. And so this scientific evidence might be able to provide solutions that, you know, socially we haven't been able to come up with yet. So I'm interested to see, you know, what categories or what scales or what different ways they can find which is backed up by scientific data to make it more fair for trans athletes what you've just said there feeds pretty nicely into one example that fergus gave so let's have a listen to him talking just about the need of this sort of scientific research and implementing these inclusive fair policies in sport the better evidence we have, the better decisions we can make. Um, and not all sports are going to be able to be treated the same. Like there's going to be differences of policy depending on what your overall sort of objective is. So we wrote an interesting paper sort of 18 months ago about comparing archery and shooting. So two Olympic sports, but two what would you would consider skill-based sports, but also going to have very different policies around there's, for example, no difference in world record performances between males and females in shooting. So actually, could you have an open category there uh, for all competitors in one? So it's sort of that balance between inclusion, safety and fairness to make sure that everyone's got an equal opportunity to take part where appropriate. We're deliberately staying out of the, the debate at the moment because we don't have enough evidence. And as, as we say on our project, like until we've got the evidence to make something informed by data, we're not going to to weigh in on what our view on policy is. So yeah, we're very much staying neutral at the moment, which is which is hard in a in a polarizing debate. Not much of it's borne out by really well designed controlled trials to help us better understand. And, and that's sort of hard in this context because obviously you've got a balance between allowing the individuals to compete where appropriate, but also like these are people who are trying to live what they believe is their authentic being. And it's, it's, it's a, a yeah, challenging area to be involved with, but it's an exciting one as well. 
It sounds like their research is attempting to be as sort of scientifically neutral as possible, which is not always the case. <laughs> Historically, when science has tried to study marginalised groups, it's been done in an extremely problematic way and also on the other end of the spectrum in very, very helpful ways as well. It's important to mention that science isn't always a welcome input into these sorts of societal debates, but it's good to hear that Fergus's work seems to be like its aim is to inform and help. Yeah, because apparently a lot of the sporting bodies that are coming up with these policies on inclusion in sport are maybe just sort of feeling around in the dark a little bit, mm. coming up with policies that aren't based on science or robust mm. evidence. So hopefully they do add something positive here that is you know, badly needed. Here's Fergus on another aspect of his research, which is looking at wearable tech in the healthcare environment. We've got an ecosystem where you can bring in lots of different sensors to measure lots of different things and monitor that from anywhere. So good example is when the Tokyo marathon was happening, I was in my house at Brighton at the time, um, monitoring athlete data from Tokyo in real time. So there may be a point where as you go into hospital, you're in a ward, you put some sensors on them, and then better monitoring of that patient can happen from anywhere in the hospital. So a clinician could be with another patient and get an alert and go and look at a patient's data in real time and say, oh, okay, we need to make a, a decision here now to try and hopefully shape that patient outcome. So that's sort of going on at the moment in, in the world of medicine. So we're trying to take some of those sort of telemedicine approaches and apply them to sport. Because obviously sport's a great vehicle for stressing your system to a point of often total exhaustion. So we're good at getting to the extremes of uh, measurement. So how we can then link that back into sensor development is quite exciting. Oh, yeah, I think that's such a interesting leap from the world of, you know, top level sport to the world of medicine. I have become obsessed with the idea of kind of wearable tech. I spent a stupid amount of money on a Garmin watch. Mm -hmm. um, other brands are available, I'm sure. And became really, really obsessed for a time about the data, the real time data that it was giving me. For example, heart rate, it has a crude estimate of like stress levels that's kind of just for the everyday stuff let alone the times that you're actually letting it count your lengths in the swimming pool or you know track your a little map of where you've been for a run i i, I think the way that the wind is blowing it would seem that the integration of tech and healthcare in the future are going to be complete I guess there's going to be a crossover between athletes who want to monitor their data and are quite happy to put themselves up for studies and experiments because they want to get every little bit of benefit from technology possible. Mm. And then that can hopefully be expanded to help the general public. But, you know, stuff like um, heat stress, heat exhaustion and illness, mm. you know, they, they, they've been monitoring this at marathons, but, you know, that's got obvious benefits for the general public if that can be widened out. 
There's also a core temperature pill, so they can monitor people's core temperature in real time. Mm. And before it used to be really difficult because you needed to have like a little monitoring box next to you. But now they've got like a different type of technology that's Bluetooth connected. Mm. So it's Bluetooth connected to a band on your wrist. And then that can monitor your core temperature uh, at the same time. So it's this sort of seamless mobile phone technology that's sending the information via the cloud. And that's how Fergus was monitoring the Tokyo Marathon from his home in Brighton. Wow. I guess the takeaway from that would be the technology is about increasing performance as well as about monitoring safety and eradicating danger in sport. And and that has obvious benefits for for the wider public. Mm. The next academic to enter the arena is Dr. Jennifer Meggs. Jenny, she is a sports and exercise psychologist and associate professor of psychology at Heriot Watt. Her research concerns resilience in competitive athletes in high pressure sport situations, and that's particularly swimming and the youth performance pathway. In the past kind of 10 years, I think the the focus and the resource that's devoted towards a psychological training support has improved. But I think, yeah, there's probably still a way to go in terms of equalising that with, with the approach to physical training. As sports psychologists, we would see that, you know, psychological preparation is crucial to help athletes to perform at the best. Alongside Jenny, also working on resilience in pressurised sporting environments, is Billy Lowe, an assistant professor of sports psychology. And he works on pressure training to give athletes the opportunity to practice under pressure across a number of different sports. Even if we can't perfectly replicate what a competition feels like, there are ways to increase the level of pressure in training. One way might be to increase some sense of judgment. So you might uh, have a leaderboard that tracks every athlete's performance in training. And that way you can't just make a mistake on a drill and forget about it and move on. And that pressure is there to keep holding yourself to performance. Or you might have the performance director of a national governing body come in and and watch and observe or the national team head coach. And that's put in pressure. It's increasing the importance of performing in what's usually just a training session. Now here is Billy on how they can transfer these skills from the training ground into real scenarios. Their resilience in the face of pressure, you know, their ability to acclimate to pressure. So they're still going to feel pressure in that training session. They're still going to feel pressure during competition, but it's familiar. They've learned coping skills. They've learned how to maybe calm themselves down or they've learned where to direct their focus because now they've got experience practicing those skills. Sometimes when I teach uh, public speaking skills to researchers as another strand of my day job, I quite often encourage them to simulate a high pressure environment in a in a low stakes setting. So like, you know, recording themselves on their phone in an empty room, for example, um, in exactly how Billy is describing, you know, simulating the idea of pressure in a non-competition or a non-public practicing safe space. And then when you do that and you repeatedly kind of build up that bank, that memory bank of times when you did perform successfully under pressure, that's when you start to become more comfortable and confident. And as he says, acclimatize yourself to those feelings and maintaining high performance in that sphere. Here's more on the approach that Jenny is using with Swim England. 
we see it as a phased approach. So the first phase would be increasing awareness, um, which I think we tend to, to skip that step. So initially we have to help athletes use techniques such as mindfulness, being present and just understanding how their body's responding and then linking that to you know, different triggers in their environment. And then once they become very aware, we can then think about how we can implement tools and strategies, one of which has been mentioned, which is simulation of pressure, Imagery is a really powerful tool as well. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there's real changes in terms of brain function um, that occur when exposed to imagery. And that's a really simple tool, but it, it does need to be rehearsed um, in quite a progressive way. So it's essentially bringing to mind different pressure situations they might encounter in competition and doing that in a, the most vivid, realistic way. And we're, we're quite interested in how virtual reality methods could be useful to help athletes use that skill and technique of imagery to help them prepare for, for the real competitions. So something surprising that she said about this performance pathway that they're developing for swimmers is this idea that helping them monitor their mental health to be aware of their psychology, whether that could boost their sporting performance. So an awareness of their psychological state, basically, because apparently there's not really any research into whether that would be the case. It's just a sort of general feeling that that would be beneficial. So they're looking at resilience, emotional regulation, the ability to manage performance pressure, all sorts of things in, in running workshops and skills training. And then they're going to be monitoring that to see if it does actually lead to a boosted sporting performance. Yeah, you sort of feel like intuitively it would. Although in my experience of sport, it can sometimes go either way. My kind of touch point is in open water swimming. When I was preparing to swim the English Channel, I was, you know, obviously thinking about all the catastrophically terrible things that could go wrong and all of the things in the murky waters that could come and eat me. And I felt quite anxious about the idea of how many jellyfish there would be in the deep water because I'd only been training in the shallows. And so one way that I found to deal with that fear was to familiarise myself with jellyfish and to kind of in quite a nerdy way like read up lots of books about them <laughs> and then do lots of research about the different types that there were and which ones can sting and which ones can't most of them can it turns out um well one of them can't <laughs> then it meant that on the day and the night when i met the jellyfish in real life i was able to like spot the different kinds and kind of take an interest in it so in that sense the visualization beforehand was really useful but i would say that in those types of maybe quite extreme environments Sometimes ignorance is bliss. And I think had I known exactly what I was getting myself in for, I would have been a lot more anxious beforehand. <laughs> so it can go either way. I think this kind of pre-preparation in the imagined scenario or the kind of um, imagined performance. So maybe that will be some further work for the researchers. We'll be back in just a moment to hear more from the academics in the University School of Sport and Exercise. But first, we're going to hear from a Harriet Watt graduate about how being at the university has given them new and amazing opportunities out there in the big bad real world. Here's Lee Jones, an alumnus who has played professional rugby ever since leaving Harriet Watt University and has just recently retired. My name is Lee Jones. I'm a recently retired international rugby player and I studied mechanical engineering at Heriot Watt in 2007 to 2011. For the last decade, I've been playing professional rugby in Scotland, 
across teams such as mm. Edinburgh Rugby, Glasgow Warriors, Scotland Sevens, and also been capped internationally. Studying at Heriot Watt allowed me to pursue both my rugby ambitions and my studies. With the help of the sports scholarship programme, I was able to continue training with a strength and conditioning coach with the awesome facilities. And that link between my studies and my sport allowed me to take exams abroad to you know, extend my degree um, when I first moved into professional rugby. Um, and I don't think I'd have been able to pursue a career in sport if it wasn't for the, for the help I got at Heriot Watt. I've just retired from professional rugby and I'm now looking to a career in software development, obviously bridging on my studies at Heriot Watt in mechanical engineering and looking forward to putting into practice what I learned throughout my time at Heriot Watt. If you want to find out more about the Sports Scholarship Programme at Heriot Watt, go to www.hw.ac.uk. You're listening to A Future Made, a podcast from Heriot Watt University with Anna Pajajski and Robbie Armstrong. So far this episode, we've been hearing from Fergus Guppy, Jennifer Meggs and Billy Lowe on sports performance, resilience and anti-doping. Still to come, Associate Professor Mark Ross and the benefits of cold water therapy according to actual science, not just me who likes open water swimming. All right, so I wanted to hear from Jenny about how the conversation we've been having on resilience can benefit people out with the world of sport and academia. Resilience broadly is the ability to kind of rebound from setbacks and adversity, deal with stress and maintain functioning, which is very relevant for for people in terms of their health and their well-being. Um, and a lot of these techniques, you know, if it was applied to a stressful situation in the workplace, imagery and simulating how that, uh, that experience would affect them is also going to be useful. So there's yeah, huge crossovers, I think, in terms of sports psychology techniques and how they can be helpful for people managing stress more generally. It's a common phrase in channel swimming is like getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's what you train for, is becoming comfortable with high levels of discomfort and getting used to that, which I guess is the definition of resilience. That's nice. Well, it's not nice. It sounds horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. I think I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I've swum outside for nearly 10 years now. You know, if you go cold water swimming first thing in the morning, you do two lengths of the, in my case, of the outdoor pool in the morning at five degrees. For the whole of the rest of the day, you can have a smug little feeling inside that it doesn't matter what else happens that day. You know, you've gone through that sort of hero's journey of the sense of terror and dread, the getting in, the horrible cold, the kind of euphoric feeling when the endorphins kind of flood your system when you first get in and then the getting out and the getting warm. And that that journey that you go on every day becomes one of sort of survival, but then also kind of, yeah, overcoming adversity. And again, it's about this simulation of a small overcoming adversary story at the beginning of the day becomes extrapolated into everyday life. Talking about swimming, another part of Jenny's research has been into cold water, specifically cold water swimming, but the, the impact that this has on health and well-being. So she started looking into this, I think, largely during the pandemic when it really exploded in popularity. So there's some quite 
strong evidence that um, exposure to cold water, even very brief time periods of, of three minutes, can reduce levels of inflammatory markers, which we call interleukins, in the bloodstream, which then reduces inflammation in the brain, uh, which has been shown to reduce the potential for anxiety, depression and other kind of ill mental health effects. So there's both, yeah, kind of developing anecdotal evidence from people describing this euphoric feeling from being exposed to cold water, as well as um, health outcomes. So there's fewer instances of sick days in people who regularly are exposed to cold water. There was quicker recovery from COVID as well and another kind of cold-like illness and disease. Um, so both, yeah, physical and mental health does seem to be improved, but just fully understanding the mechanisms of why that happens is, is still um, something for research to explore. Time to introduce our final academic, Associate Professor in Exercise Physiology, Mark Ross. His research looks into how exercise can prevent cancer, diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And he summarises his work as using exercise to manipulate our immune system to enhance tissue repair as well as disease and general health. And he explained to me that although the immune system protects us from viruses and bacteria, what happens as we age is our immune system becomes dysfunctional. And we saw this during the COVID pandemic when we saw that older people were, were more susceptible to the dangers of the disease. Mm. So where sports science comes in here is that the recent research shows that exercise can manipulate our immune system in good and bad ways. So too much exercise can lead to immune suppression, but just the right amount seems to protect the immune system and helps us fight off infection at a good level. Mm. So let's hear from Mark now on a key part of this research. A lot of my work has been looking at how single bouts of exercise, so if you go out for a 10 kilometre run, for example, you can actually mobilise your white blood cells into your circulation from other tissues, so they're, you're almost transporting them from areas where they're dormant to potentially fight off uh, new infection in the hours post-exercise bout. So exercise has a very quick response on our immune system. Some of the other work that we're doing is looking at how the immune system also helps repair tissue. So it's a secondary function of some of our immune cells is to repair muscle, repair blood vessels, that kind of thing. And a lot of our research is looking into specific white blood cells that can do that job and how exercise and physical activity can do this and potentially offset age-related disease that way. There's these general maxims that, you know, exercise is good for your health, yeah. but to actually hear, you know, the scientific explanation of what's going on in the body with red blood cells and tissue repair and stuff is, is absolutely fascinating. I wasn't surprised to hear about the cardiovascular benefits, but like helping to ward off colds or infections coming in, cancer even, like seems to have a very far reaching effect, more so than I appreciated. So as we get older, our bodies obviously fail us quite drastically. Um, we lose a lot of muscle mass, we lose aerobic capacity, we lose our ability to undertake high intensity exercise. We are at greater risk of cardiovascular disease, cancer and diabetes. What, what exercise can do, uh, specifically for your cardiovascular system, is it can protect your blood vessels against dysfunction. And your blood vessels are pretty much the first site of dysfunction before disease starts. So our Exercise regularly can manipulate blood flow around the body, which actually acts as a kind of biomechanical stimulus to the blood vessels to support them and to keep them healthy. 
I wouldn't call it anti-aging, but it can attenuate the aging process. And we know lots of data showing that people who are older but take part in lots of exercise, they have a much, I would say, younger cardiovascular system than those who are older and are inactive or unfit. Um, in terms of our immune system, our immune system becomes quite inflammatory as we get older. So actually, it's not infection risk that's the big issue. It's actually the inflammation causing other diseases. So it's almost like an autoimmune disease. Our immune system attacks our own bodies by producing lots of these inflammatory markers that actually cause damage to other tissues. What exercise appears to be able to do in regular exercise, this is, is able to reduce that inflammation and keep our immune system from aging too early. I was thinking more at the kind of molecular level, but like just the, you know, the physical act of getting your heart rate going. It's interesting that that is what is at the root of those benefits as we age. Yeah, it's sort of like a car that's sitting stationary for like a year without being used. Yeah. You know, its health declines rapidly. Whereas if you take it out regularly, you know, its, its shelf life is extended greatly. Yeah, good analogy. So a lot of my research is lab-based. So we bring people into our lab and we get them to exercise. And this could be men, women, young, old, fit, unfit. Depends on the research question that we're asking at the time. But a lot of our studies involve them exercising in the lab. We take blood samples before and afterwards, muscle biopsies before and afterwards. And we then isolate the specific cells we're looking for. And we do a variety of biomedical tests to test their function and to see how well they're functioning, are they doing the job that they're supposed to do? And obviously then comparing interventions, comparing groups. And that gives us a huge amount of information. All right. So, yeah, there's a bit of insight into what's going on at Scotland's National Sports Performance Centre, Orium, and Harriet Watts Sport and Exercise Department. It is a really interesting place. You've got lots going on there. So there's the Scottish Rugby Union that train at the Rickerton campus at Orium. The Scottish Football Association use it as a training facility. And Heart of Midlothian as well. They rent the centre for their first team training and they run their, their academy as well in the space. Mm. So it's really cool. And as we've heard, there's loads of interesting stuff going on as well. Yeah, what I expected to hear was how we can extrapolate research that's being done at the very highest level to what us kind of members of the public, amateur level athletes, people that do sports, can learn from it. And I guess what I've been struck by is how that is so directly applicable. You know, the, the people operating at the top level have a different reason for doing it but actually the benefits both psychological and physiological are kind of universal I guess. It's really helpful to hear for an amateur like me that this kind of research is happening. There's a lot of good policy stuff that can come from it both in terms of health and exercise policy but also trans inclusion policy like we talked about at the top. So it seems like really really important work for an individual level but also at a population level yeah i mean you've summed that up pretty well there i think that's a good good point to finish <laughs> and if in doubt just go for a run or you know go for a go for a swim orium it is really this sort of integrated sporting hub where you know you've got the training academies you've got these professional teams training there but you've also got academics doing cutting-edge research and it all seems to be happening in the same place so it, it just struck me as a really interesting place yeah thanks for listening to a future made subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss an episode just search for a future made 
Or you can head over to Harriet Watt University's website at hw.ac.uk.